This is Lorraine Gordon from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance at Southern Cross University. Today we talk to Michael Taylor, a sixth generation wool producer from Kentucky in the New England Tablelands, and also founder of the Australian Ethical Merino Growers Co-op. Michael's family were one of the original settlers of the New England area. His parents, John and Vicki Taylor, discovered the real causes of the New England dieback problem. The family tradition of continuous experimenting and learning is certainly instilled in Michael's approach to farming. This is our agroforestry champion, who also runs a merino sheep and wool enterprise of the highest of ethical standards. Not only is Michael a farmer by choice, he is an accomplished civil engineer and an extreme adventurer, which brings an interesting edge to his endeavours. This impressive young farmer always has a smile on his face and is positive about agriculture's future and brings a lovely energy to our podcast series. Welcome to Ground Cover with your host, Kerry Cochran, proudly brought to you by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and Southern Cross University. This is a show for farmers by farmers, a uniquely Australian podcast series exploring real-life stories of land managers who have undertaken the transition from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. Each week, we'll share a unique and honest conversation about the challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture so you can make informed decisions about how to best manage your land. Our regenerative farmer profile today stays on the northern tablelands of New South Wales near Armadale, but closer to the small settlement of Kentucky. The Taylors own a 650 hectare property called The Hill, and this story is a fascinating one in that the Taylors became regenerative by circumstance. They say that adversity is the mother of invention, Well, this story comes from that stable of thinking. The story is about dieback to thousands of eucalyptus trees that populated The Hill back in the 1970s through to the 1990s. This led to John and Vicki Taylor having to solve a difficult problem. The problem was one of, where do you start? Well, with me today is John and Vicky Taylor's son, Michael, who now has a major say in the property. Michael, what do you do when you have such a complex issue that not even the experts knew what to do? Uh, you start experimenting <laughs> and keep doing it for three generations. So uh, you're, you're correct, Kerry. It was my parents that went a little bit nuts when it came to to the tree planting side of things and they have innovated you know so much in terms of farm tree establishment but the story actually started with my grandfather grandfather's generation and he went from you know growing up clearing a lot of trees and ring barking sucker bashing and and then the arrival of chemical fertilizers and and a lot of industrial agricultural equipment back in the in the 50s and the tailors sadly these days were were actually the second family in the district in Australia to start aerially spreading fertilizer so they were well ahead in terms of changing the landscape and it wasn't until I guess it was really for my grandfather it was the 64 drought he'd seen such massive increases in production on the farm and the 64 drought hits and you know dad always talks about the fact that a lot of their pastures were were clover and and that sort of thing, and, and the, the drought hit and they were, were left with, with nothing. Yeah, it was then, really, that my grandfather started 
looking very seriously at what was happening. And, and then, like you say, out of adversity, it was the 80s drought, the 82 drought that my parents really suffered. And that's, like you say, that's when they were a little bit of a, aware of it, but that's when they really realised they had to change things significantly. So, you know, f- five generations down the track and, and I'm six generation <laughs> on the same land, we're still innovating and, and learning and, and understanding better. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's an ongoing process. You must have, you were, were a young lad back in those days, of course, or probably not even born, but you were <laughs> probably sitting around the dining room table or the breakfast table hearing conversations from your grandfather and your father and your mother about what was happening. Would that be right? Was that how it went? Yeah, definitely. Look, I was there trailing along, putting tree guards on or, or loading seedlings into planters or putting sawdust around trees and or travelling across the country to pick up seedlings. And yeah, you know, I didn't realise how much I'd been involved until really taking over the, the farm and always sort of being disappointed that I hadn't done much. And then my parents would keep pointing out to me, well, actually, you, you planted those trees and you helped with those ones. And you mm. were here when that happened. And, and I remember, I, I definitely remember the drought in the, in the 90s. Again, that was around 92. I don't clearly remember the 80s drought, but very quickly learnt, became more familiar with imagery and the things that had happened then. And, and then the warnings that dad said, just don't let your land get into the state <laughs> that we let it get into, the mistakes we made. So Yes, but you, what you did was fairly conventional. You cleared your land, you used superphosphate, you used subclover, yep. everything That's was, right. you're a good farm manager. Very, very conventional and very, I guess it was, it was considered innovative <laughs> in agriculture, but I uh, didn't, didn't realise the, the damage we're doing. And I, I always laugh now that I uh, still see farmers clearing and, and picking up every single last stick on their place. And I remember when Dad first said, oh, I just can't believe that we cleared every stick and burnt every stick, didn't realise how much damage I was doing to the place. <laughs> it's I, I still consider my dad quite conservative in some ways and yet at the same time didn't realise that the thinking that my parents had was pretty out there compared to what, yeah, had been done. <laughs> yeah. In terms of uh, the problem itself, the dieback, yep. uh, what what do you put it down to exactly? I think it was pretty pretty simple. I mean, it, it simple in some ways it, in the fact that it was just, it was a system and and the system got shortcutted through overclearing and uh, and then overgrazing meant that the, the natural cycles that were in place that regenerated those trees cut any chance of regeneration. And then you know superphosphate application and which went with the increased stocking rates also made made it very hard for any sort of regeneration. And then. It was gradual because the trees weren't so much being killed, but the, the older trees weren't being replaced. But then I guess the, the complicated part that we're still still learning about is, uh, I mean, it's, it's well documented now, but the fact that a lot of the natural controls in place that, that stop the, the beetles from defoliating the, 
the trees, those systems broke down as well. So it was a two-pronged attack on the trees and, uh, and you're only just seeing more rounds of dieback in, in other parts of the country where, where maybe the agriculture wasn't as intensive. And even on the fringes of New England where we thought they were immune to dieback, you're now starting to see areas of trees dying out so it's that's ongoing as well and it, and I would like to point out that it was it was actually my grandfather's brother Keith Taylor he was an entomologist and he was up visiting my grandfather one weekend my dad remembers he was about 10 and uh, they went out and had a look at a patch of eucalypts I think they were brittle gum and they were dripping in these beetles the Christmas beetles and it was my uncle who, who'd been working on the Cyrex wasp. It was him that said that these beetles would be the death of the, the eucalypts in, in the New England. And that was back in the, uh, that was back in the early 60s. Yeah, and sure enough, <laughs> 20 mm. years down the track, <laughs> mm. they, were, they were well and truly wiping out trees. So what you did, from what I can gather, is that you actually went back into reforesting the property and starting with uh, radiator pine and also with eucalyptus. Uh, yeah, look, when my parents started planting, eucalypt seedlings were, were very expensive and there weren't, really weren't many nurseries propagating eucalypts. And uh, we're talking, you know, for 4 or $5 a seedling as compared to 10 to 15 cents to establish a, a pine seedling. So my parents had recognised that the landscape just wasn't, wasn't right. Uh, initially, they needed shelter for the stock, and that meant getting trees back into the landscape. As, uh, and for my father, I guess, and well, my parents, they were conservative in that they didn't jump in in a massive way and break the bank, but they looked at the most economical ways of, of getting large numbers of trees in, and, and that led to a lot of innovations in why they planted the trees but the first step was just getting tree seedlings and and there was a forestry nursery just down the road in Walker they were still planting a lot of trees in that area at that stage that was a fairly easy easy solution the New Zealanders were also doing a lot of development in agroforestry so the potential not only for for having shelter but maybe having a timber product so already diversifying the tree part of the enterprise was on my father's mind so pine trees seemed like a good choice at the time and I think even five ten years ago I would have said oh we've got too many pines but now especially these last two droughts I've been to I can't be thankful enough for for all the trees and the pines that we've got especially during winter the shelter they provide but yeah we're, we're looking beyond that these days. It seems as though you've moved into a more strategic direction with your trees where they're planted now on the contour and are probably thicker than they were in the past. Yeah, I, as I said, my dad was always about getting the most number of trees in as, as cheap as possible and part of that was, was planting them thick and getting them in the ground and, and not having to come back and replant. They accounted for, for some of the losses by adding a few extra trees in there and as a bit of natural thinning would occur. Yeah, the, the contour plantings were, were an evolution 10, 15 years down the track when they'd moved from planting in, in blocks in lines along fences and blocks on hilltops, blocks along the slope. And then they had this idea of covering larger areas, not in a, a thick block because they'd seen uh, already the forest effect cutting out pasture growth in 
under the trees, obviously in a, in a thick forest. In the bigger, some of the bigger blocks they planted, so they were looking at spreading the trees out more. And then it was Ron Watkins in Western Australia who, at the time, was planting trees on the contour on his contour banks that had sort of come from Yeoman's ideas, PA Yeoman's. So they started experimenting with with a couple of smaller areas, and then in ninety two they closed up a whole fifty hectare paddock and planted the whole paddock out with double rows spaced between sort of eighty and one hundred and fifty meters apart. The idea was that there would be a, a row of pines could be harvested later on and a row of mixed natives and exotics that would be left to cover the uh, landscape. And I think that planting has has been one of the more successful ones and is quite substantial. So a lot of people see that one. But there's been a lot of iterations of that since and uh, combinations of of trees and changing spaces because a lot of the the eucalypts and exotics got out-competed by the pines in that circumstance. So, but yeah, it's just been, that's been just one iteration of, (laughs) of the process. One of the landscape functions that Charlie Massey refers to in his book, The Call of the Reed Warbler, is that of regenerating dynamic ecosystems. Is that what happened here? You got your ecosystem functioning again, whereas before it was breaking down. Yeah, I think we live in such a, so far from what the original ecosystem was, such a modified landscape the word I was looking for. Like Charlie said, getting those ecosystem functions just happening again part of that shelter and we've definitely seen you know a wide range of bird life and even koalas living in the in the pine trees so animals are using are using those those trees as shelter and since we've established those trees now the pines it's been become a lot easier to establish other trees in the in the shelter that's created but now we're we're faced with other problems like uh, we've got so many kangaroos and wallabies living on the place that we've had a few plantings fail quite dramatically because they've been totally eaten out by the kangaroos. So we're we're having to change the way we do plantings. Whole paddock plantings aren't aren't as easy as they were when my parents started out. We're having to close up smaller areas and and protect the trees not only from the sheep and the cattle, but also from the kangaroos and, and the wallabies while they get established. We're finding ways around that, and that's okay. Yeah, it's, it's just constantly changing as, as these things changes. Yes, we're definitely seeing the ecosystem functions happening again, and it's, but it's not always happening in the way it was originally. It's slightly different. Bird diversity and et cetera. When you look at your landscape now, it must be aesthetically very pleasing. Uh, could you comment on that and also what that's done to productivity on the farm? Well, for a start, I probably wouldn't have come back to the farm <laughs> if, if uh, my ancestors hadn't transformed it into to what it is now. I think I probably would have been looking at it as a very bleak place to live (laughs) and uh yeah there i guess i could say there's there is definitely a a creative side to my family that has definitely looked at the trees as an aesthetic part of the the landscape it's been very hard to always quantify the productivity benefits but they're there and there's been enough 
studies done on the place now to show that we've definitely maintained productivity. But in terms of the sheep enterprises, I think uh, lamb survival rates are you know much higher than they have have been in the past. We're quite regularly in the the ninety ninety five percent lambing rates, which is quite reasonable for for our style of sheep. The productivity of the agroforestry business is probably underestimated. That's partly due to the time that we can put into it and access to the markets. But we've shown well and truly that we can produce sawn pine just as well as any other sawmill and at productivity rates that are quite acceptable by industry standards. Farm tourism is something that would have been non-existent, so that's another enterprise we run on the place. So, yeah, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to quantify, you know, mentally living through dry times like this and being able to go out every day and spend it amongst the trees or in the middle of summer when, uh, when there's, you know, always green grass in the shade. Like I said, it, it's hard to quantify, but it has been done and we certainly haven't gone back in productivity or, or profitability. So now you're not only um, sheep farmers, you're also timber farmers. You, you've got your own sawmill and you, you mill your own timber. So that's an added virtue of what you've been doing. Yeah, definitely. Look, two years ago, I say it was the 64 drought for my grandfather. It was the, the 80s drought for my parents. And it was the 2013-14 drought for me. <laughs> and I came, I came within two months of running out of water completely. And it was, it was a really interesting time. But I was always relieved that I knew that I could uh, sell all my stock and still run the sawmill business to pay wages at least if I had no stock. So I would still be making an income off the land without the stock enterprise and without any water, <laughs> which, is, which is probably not too bad compared to, to a lot of other farms in the district that also had to destock. And, and we're seeing that again this season a lot of properties destocking. Maybe some farmers think that's not bad being able to go on holiday. <laughs> Whereas as I still be at the I'll still be at the sawmill. But uh, but no, it's been a really, really interesting journey, you know, not only for, for myself but my parents seeing the trees grow and and starting to harvest the, the younger thinnings for uh, round peeled posts. Most of the posts on the property now are all all from pine that was grown on on the farm and treated treated just down the road at Tamworth and now to have the sawmill up and running and and know that we can be shipping out you know a semi load of of sawn pine every week and we've been involved in the agroforestry industry so that's also gone over into land care where I've done a master tree growers course and and now there's a group of us up here similar groups elsewhere in Australia, but a group of us up here providing peer group mentoring. The agroforestry network is, is definitely broadened and it's been a really, really exciting journey to be on that one as well. I believe you've got 500 additional trees, 500,000, I should say, additional trees on your property. And I'm wondering whether you engaged in offsetting or whether you've benefited from uh, uh, sequestering carbon via the trees. Well, for a start, I'd, I'd love to have 500,000 extra trees, but my parents have planted over 200,000 on the place. They planted uh, probably another 300,000 across the New England region when they had their contract tree planting business. 
I've probably put in another fifty or sixty thousand since since I've been home. So I've got a long way to to catch up to my parents, but there's there's still plenty of space. We've dabbled in the the carbon market side of things a little bit, but uh, nothing's ever actually eventuated because our trees are, are mostly exotics, and a lot of our native plantings have exotics mixed into them so until it was actually my parents property was was involved in one of the very early carbon sequestration studies done by southern cross university back in 1992 and they did actually measure a lot of sequestered carbon in pine plantations on my parents place but but like I said, because they're not native trees, those have never been allowed to be offsetted. <laughs> so, but we we got a whole lot of benefits from the trees in other ways that are more than worth equivalent to whatever the offsetting might have been. I wonder where you go from here. Then you've got uh, a property that seems to be humming along quite well. Uh, are there any sort of strategic uh, directions ahead for you and the farm? Yeah, there's always so much to learn. I think we've changed our grazing. Uh, very gradually over the years. I think more intensive rotational grazing is possible. We've been fairly cautious moving into to something that's, that's too intensive because it's a one-man show. It's only myself running the whole farm. I've got a, I've got a family with kids. And so there's a lot of other time constraints. We've improved our rotations a lot. We're not getting the 60 or 70 days that rest on a lot of our pastures that we would like, but we're getting the there's sort of the 30 to 50 days and it's made a big difference. So there's there's still a lot of potential there. When my father stopped using chemical fertilisers, he actually didn't move into putting any other inputs into the pastures. And due to that, we've got a lot of potential to increase the, the soil nutrition still. So I've, I've got a bit of a program of of spreading organic inputs such as chook manure and gypsum. We're definitely seeing big improvements on some of our pastures in, the, in that area and, and we're getting green grass right through the winters in some of those improved areas and we're starting to see native species come back that I haven't seen for years. I think the soil, the pasture improvement side of things, increasing the number of perennial species in our pastures and getting a mix that's going to provide us with with feed all year round is there's a long way to go yeah <laughs> what can i say <laughs> well, you, started this, you started this story talking about your grandfather and how he put uh, superphosphate on aerially 60 years on thereabouts his grandson is applying organics to the soil not superphosphate is that the way it goes is that the tradition the, the pathway you're on yeah, that, that's the pathway we're on. I think talking with someone about soil ecology and how little research there still is out there and and the understanding of how the microbes and, and mycorrhizal fungis work in the soil and and how that relates to pasture production. I think I think a lot of the soil science is pretty well covered these days and pretty well understood, but I think the soil ecology science, there's still a lot to learn. That's part of the experimenting we're doing, and but we're definitely seeing, uh, you know, earthworms and and the like in places where you would never have expected to see them, and especially in the middle of a drought. We feel like what we're doing. I'm definitely getting more grazing days out of those 
paddocks that we're treating. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of innovation, a lot of experimenting happening out there. There's a lot of a lot of farmers that are doing things and, and getting great results. You know, every season's different as well. So it changes your, the way you have to manage your land and what's, what's capable, uh, what happens when you close up land for conservation and, and how that affects the rest of your farm. But, yeah, so we're constantly finding out what we can change. There's still still a lot of progress that can be made on even even on the, the animal handling side of things. I've extended a lot of the, the laneway networks. I'm also involved in the Ethical Merino Growers Co-op. So, so animal welfare has been a, a really big thing that we've been looking at. So, yeah, lots of, lots of developments still. Lots of good things happening. I wonder if I might ask you a question a bit from left field. But I'm wondering if you could see any parallels with what you experienced with dieback and what is happening with the Murray-Darling Basin issue today. Is there any parallels between those two? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, look, I can't say to what extent, but it's definitely the intensity of agriculture has definitely been draining on on a lot of the natural systems and and draining beyond what those, those systems can endure during drought seasons. I mean, we know that there's been water being pumped out of the Murray since the when was it the 18, late 1800s. The amounts that they were pumping out were very small, but those amounts were enough to stop the, the flow. And, and you look at the amount of water that's uh, being pumped out of the system, just the say, same as the amount of water and, and nutrition that's being pumped out a lot of our grazing systems up here. I think, yeah, there's definitely a lot of parallels. <laughs> I can't comment on to, to exactly what extent. Yeah, definitely a lot of parallels. And, and like I say, some of those, some of those landscapes that were, were much later in terms of being developed, the impact is, has also been delayed. So like I said, on the, on the western and the eastern slopes, where there's still a lot of forested area, I think the effects are, are only now just starting to be realised rather than... I guess in a way we were we were fortunate enough to get a head start on ruining our, our landscape that, we, that we've got a head start on, on getting it back in order again. Well, I wonder whether what identifies a regenerative farmer is the fact that they are attentive to the ecology of the system and that's what defines you. Would you say that's how it is? Yeah, generally if, if people are asking me my view on what regenerative is because that's it's only a label that's... It's appeared over our next to our name since probably since Charlie Massey <laughs> published his book, but it's yeah definitely being being in touch with not only the the natural systems but the the people and the management and, and also the the production side of things. I think if you're generally on a an positive trend for all those parts of the system, you're regenerating as a whole. If you're Production's going up, but your mental health and your your employees are falling behind in their health, uh, and they're working twenty four seven, three sixty five days of the year. Then you're not really regenerative. You're mining the the labour, or or vice versa. If everybody's really happy, but the business is going into debt rapidly, uh, well, <laughs> you maybe wouldn't consider that to be regenerative either. As so, it's holistic management is a thing, but I think thinking holistically about your your farm and your business is uh, a big part of being regenerative so uh, and I think it's important to not necessarily emphasize the 
the practices or the tools and the techniques. I think that can vary a lot between regions and and between you know size of the farm and lifestyle stages. And but I think as long as you're on a, on a positive trend for all parts of the business, yeah. So that that's my take on <laughs> on what regenerative farming is, and I and I think we should be very careful. There's definitely practices that are much more likely to produce positive outcomes, but I don't think we should write off a lot of parts of industrial agriculture just because they're industrial. It's important to keep an open mind, keep thinking holistically about your whole whole business. Michael, it's been a pleasure. So thank you for participating in the podcast on regenerative farming. All right, you're welcome, Kerry. Thank you very much. And and look, just like to thank everybody out there that's assisted us in so many ways over the years and looking forward to the future. Thanks for listening to Ground Cover. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And for further resources on this topic, head to scu.edu.au forward slash RAA. This podcast has been produced by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance on behalf of Southern Cross University, a collaboration designed to build a more resilient agriculture industry in Australia.